Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Amy Boy Silverman joining us now, RBC Capital Markets Equity Derivative Strategist. Amy, great to catch up with you. Are we at risk of trying to justify the unjustifiable looking at this equity market and where it is right now? <laughs> That's a tough question. Um, you know, honestly, probably a little bit. The, what gives me hesitation, especially as, as an options person, is, you know, we've seen this phenomenon over and over this summer where the markets go up and volatility goes up, too. We refer to that as the spot up slash ball up dynamic. Um, but, you know, intuitively, you can think of it as when the markets go up, the, the people in the market are getting more nervous rather than less nervous, which is, you know, which is not the traditional way the relationship should work and, and should definitely give investors some pause. Should our viewers and listeners, Amy, should they ignore the pros in their derivative strategies right now? <laughs> I, you know, it's funny because um, we, we look at a lot of data and part of what we've seen is a lot of historical relationships break down. And when that happens, you know, you get a lot of exuberance. So to give you an example, I, I think part of what has happened is in, in kind of the, the last few months, retail has really been right in saying, look, these these traditional relationships don't make sense. You know, you get the volatility up and you get the calls up and the market goes up and that's okay. But the reality is over time, these do all normalize. It's just very, very tricky to to say when the music will stop. But, you know, when you look at 20, 30-year time periods, when these relationships look like this, they almost always revert again. So I, I guess the answer to your question is is always one of, uh, of timing. Well, Amy, to that point, talking about the little bit of softness today after a completely solid run that's seen risk rotate into the most speculative areas of markets, do you see this as a lasting trend that will be with us through the end of the year and through the November volatility of the presidential silly season, as uh, Tom likes to say, or do you see this as a blip, as Tom was saying, this idea that this is going to be a momentary buy-the-dip moment, the dip being tiny? You know, here's how I think about the timing. Um, through the election right now, the options market is extremely bid. Um, but at this point, I honestly think volatility through November is probably fairly priced, if not a little bit expensive. What what I actually think is the, the really interesting part of the term structure right now is when we get a vaccine that is one that everyone is comfortable with, one that is accessible. And, you know, you can pretty much say, okay, this, this coronavirus pandemic has effectively been solved. I think when that happens, you're going to get a very interesting divergence in the market where this narrowness of breadth we've seen, where really it's only seven or eight stocks driving up the whole market, you know, they start to sell off hard and you get a really weird situation where, in the S&P 500, you've got 490 stocks rallying, but the indices are actually down because of what's happened with the overweighting in the market cap. So I, I think you get this very strange um, situation 
where the broader multitude of companies are rallying, but you actually get headline indices down um, despite it being a good thing. And, and that's where we think a lot of these outperformance trades between different indices come into play in an interesting way. Amy, what do you make of the fact that equities have carried on rallying through the month of August into September and high yield spreads have stopped tightening? Yeah, you know, I I think that's interesting. I think a little bit of what's been happening, at least on the equity side, has been driven by the derivatives market. And so there is more technicals at play. Um, we've really, really seen that in the tech side where, you know, we've seen more than a billion of premium bought in terms of tech upside calls and call spreads and kind of across the board, 10 of the biggest mega cap names. And so what's happened with that is it has exacerbated some of the second order derivatives effects and that, you know, tends to drive the market up in these names. And, and what that, and the problem is these names are such heavy weights in the indices that it is thereby driving up the indices. Um, but the, what I thought was interesting is in the last week or so, we're starting to see the positioning in the options market actually flip to the downside. So we're seeing in the March and April tenors of next year, actually downside in tech being bought as opposed to near term upside being bought. And so I think you do start to see that reversion coming in. Amy, uh, thank you so much. Amy was Silverman with us with RBC Capital uh, Markets. Right now, Lisa Bramowitz, John Farrow, and I are simulcast Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television. We welcome all of you coast to coast across America that is clearly and has always been over-retailed. We are facing that now with a vengeance. Steve Sadoff joins us. Of course, MasterCard senior advisor and so much part of the merchandising of his Saks Fifth Avenue uh, for many, many a year. See, Steve Sadoff, what have you gleaned in the last number of weeks about retail America, from Walmart in the big boxes up to the empty luxury stores on Madison Avenue? What's the new new for you? Well, I think, Tom, it, it, the MasterCard data would tell you on the recovery insights that you're starting to see a recovery. If you go to the depths of the uh, of the pandemic you were in March, we were looking at a minus 14% in the total consumer spending. It's improved dramatically over the number of months, but the rate of growth has been slowing. So we went from that minus 14 to now we're at a low single digit level that has stayed at that low single digit level for the last couple of months. If you look at retail, retail has been a little bit in the middle of the epicenter of that. Uh, of that, And what's happened is that the retail has not died, it's shifted. So you've seen a doubling in the amount of internet sales, basically. And you've seen that the retailers who have been omni-channel, who have been contactless, who have been home-related, who have been the ones that have been open during the pandemic have been the winners. Those are the Home Depots, the Lowe's, yeah, the Walmart's, yeah. the Targets. But the reality is you're starting to see green shoots in other retail. Travel and entertainment, which had been dead in the water, over the last several months, you're starting to see an improvement in travel and entertainment. And that, to me, is what's interesting coming out of the recovery insights. In Europe, you've seen some recovery in travel and entertainment. You've also seen people starting staying closer to home. Stay vacations. Gasoline is up. You're seeing lodging starting to improve. So it's not just about retail in terms of the home uh, decorating the hardware. 
Now you're seeing it evolving so that the restaurant trends are improving. Clearly, Tom, your comment about the number of stores, you're going to see a massive number of losers coming out of, you've seen it, in terms of the number of bankruptcies on the retail sector. Steve, how are we going to clear that market if there are, quote, a massive number of losers? How in retail do you move them aside so you can move on? Well, look, I think that there's going to be a repurposing in malls, as an example. You already see it. So a number of the anchors are either closing or going bankrupt. You're going to see them repurposed into either healthcare, education, fitness. This is going. This is the normal evolution of retail. But have remember, overall retail coming into the pandemic was about plus four percent. My, uh, I'm not going to be doing any forecasting. But even as we sit today, we're in that low single-digit decline. Internet, omni-channel is going to continue to grow. We have too many stores in the United States. Everybody knows it's probably three times per capita than what you see in Europe. So we've got to see a closing of the number of stores. It's gonna—it's a reset that's going on with the uh, landlords. You're, the rents are gonna are coming down, and you're going to see in number. You go to Madison Avenue. You go there all the time. The vacancy rate is 20, 30 percent or more. You're going to have to see a reset relative to the store base. So, Steve, you have seen people shift away from spending money in the brick and mortar stores. They are spending online. They have supported this economy. They continue to do so. Can they afford the purchases that they're making, that they're charging on their MasterCards? Oh, no question. I mean, first of all, you see a luxury consumer that's coming back. You saw Macy's reported yesterday that their high-end luxury businesses are doing well. Saks made comments that they were positive uh, in their overall trend. The luxury consumer has not been traveling uh, internationally, as an example. So they uh, have the spending capacity. At the lower end of the market, the government support programs over the uh, uh, since the pandemic started has supported spending. So I think that clearly there's a question right now. There's a, a, a bifurcation between Wall Street and Main Street, and that the consumer is not growing at the rate that we're seeing the stock market growing. On the other hand, there is a wherewithal to uh, spend, and the consumer has been spending largely on nesting home basics for the first several months. But now, as you look at this travel entertainment data, you see it in Europe, you see it in the U.S., that the consumer and restaurant spending improving, uh, even department stores, which have been in that minus 50%, 60% numbers, have shown improvement over the last couple of yeah. months. So as the economy is opening, you're starting to see that spending coming back. Steve, 45 seconds on the clock. Just a final question from me, not just about where they're spending and how much they're spending. Let's talk about how they're spending. What can you guys do to get contactless payments up in America? Oh, I think that it, it's what the consumer needs and wants, and the progressive retailers, and I'm looking at the Walmarts, the Targets, the Home Depots, the big boxes have made the investments to be able, they have the scale to be able to do the uh, contactless spending. Uh, the MasterCards of the world are providing some of the capabilities to do it. Others are also. And that's going to be the future long, uh, longer term. Smaller <clears throat> businesses I worry about because they need to be able to make the investments. And right now they're strapped. Yep. And it's expensive to install those machines sometimes. Steve, great to catch up. Former SAC CEO and MasterCard senior advisor. 
Right now, though, Seema Shah, and this is an important conversation with Principal Global Investors, their chief strategist, with a real focus on the equity market. Seema, writing this morning for Principal Global, thinking about this market, what is the key distinction of these equity markets? Hi, thanks for having me on. Well, you know, as you said before, this equity market is still riding really high. Um, It's been driven by a couple of factors. There are some things that really do concern me about it, and that's in the last few days. This real emphasis on the vaccine. Uh, You know, we know, of course, we've heard the news that November is is a likely date. But the question is, you know, how realistic is that? How effective is the vaccine going to be? And how much are people going to really adapt it? And if it isn't as good as we're expecting then that support mechanism really falls away from the market. And then I think that we're looking at some potential disappointment, which uh, could be very dangerous for investors who are looking out here. What does dangerous mean? I mean, how big of a fall are we talking? Well, OK, so let, let's break it down. So when we look back to what has a rally up till now been, been driven by before the news around the vaccine, it's been driven by stimulus. Uh, it's been driven by the release of pent-up demand. Now, that pent-up demand, we've already had the easy gains, but now people want to feel like they are comfortable going out. Uh, news around the vaccine, I think one of the reasons we're seeing some of the more cyclical stocks performing better is this hope that people can go about their, their normal business. If we don't have that, then the rally that we're expecting, especially in the economy through Q4, starts to fall away. And then, you know, as we know, the equity market already looks very frothy, so we're looking at potential falls at that point. Seema... I sound like a broken record. I've been talking about this a lot. The fact that people back in August, early August, were saying if we don't get an additional round of fiscal support, we are going to see a reality check in markets. It is September 3rd. There is no fiscal support on the docket. In fact, it is unclear whether they will have one even to think about thinking about next week. Why are equity markets not responding? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that our clients keep uh, keep asking us. And I think the thing is, is that look, we actually have economic data which has surprised on the upside. So the economy has been stronger than we anticipated. And I think what the one thing that many, many people have done over the last few months is we, I think we catastrophized a bit too much and we underestimated how much human nature just wants to go back to normal. So look, we can't go completely back to normal unless we have that vaccine, but there is something there. <laughs> So the economic recovery has been stronger. And I think because of that, markets are starting to think, do we really need this fiscal stimulus package? Seema, when corporations, big corporations, publicly traded corporations, when they cut 1%, 2%, even 4% of people, what does that do down the income statement 12 months out? Right. And, you know, again, the unemployment issue is so significant and we keep hearing news i mean in london there are continuous news flow of big companies making significant redundancies uh, these people really need to have those fiscal pack- packages so i buy into the idea that the market is starting to think it's less important than maybe it was but to me this is really what's going to sustain the recovery going forward if we have that fiscal stimulus package if we don't then those people who are going to be facing job losses or even facing the risk of job losses um, they're the ones that are going to struggle and there will be an impact further down the line. Seema, did you ever think that you could make a decision, if you had enough money, that is, a decision to either own a company like Apple or the whole FTSE 100 and have a half a trillion dollars to spare? Did you ever anticipate a situation like that? No, and I, you know, I, I don't think anyone could have foreseen um, the movement that we've had. At the same time, though, look, the trend in big tech is not new. Right. We have seen it drive markets since the GFC. 
Uh, what's happened over here, of course, is it's accelerated, so it's been magnified. Um, we have some genuine belief in the strength of big tech and the belief that it could continue to perform well, to produce good results. Uh, but I just don't think that having the, the rally so narrow is a healthy thing. And I think investors really need to be aware that unless we get a full economic recovery and we get a vaccine, that until we have that, you just don't have a sufficiently strong recovery to keep it going, that you need to, that you have enough confidence. Seema, great to catch up. Good to catch up as always. Seema Shah there of Principal Global Investors. Someone wonderful at tying these pieces together is Michael Clority. For decades, uh, he has been looking at the fixed income market, and we are thrilled he could be with us from UBS today. Michael Clority, how do you sum this together to stagger to the jobs report tomorrow? Right. So in, in general, jobs report, you know, labor market data has been a little bit brighter than we've been uh, anticipating lately. So good news. That said, you know, we're, we're likely to see the unemployment rate drop uh, below 10 percent. Um, yeah, it's still awfully close to 10 percent. So we're still a long, long way from normalcy. <laughs> Markets continue to trade much more prospects for vaccines than uh, any labor market or other economic data is a little bit more forward looking mm-hmm. person. Um, but, you know, it's it's been right news, but, you know, starting from a very grim place. So long way to go to get back to normal. Michael, you are legendary for writing detailed notes about core fixed income principles. Help us where with where the nominal yield is right now, minus burgeoning inflation expectations over to the focus on the residual, the real yield, the real yield, the real yield. Which of those are you focused on? Well, I think one of the right now fixed income seems priced for for perfection from the Fed. So if we look, inflation expectations have been creeping higher. We're still below their target, but you know back up to about one and three quarters percent. So you know back to where we were uh, before the virus hit. Um, you know, meanwhile we've seen real yields fall uh, below one percent. So we're about negative 108 basis points. What that's telling you is markets expecting the Fed to be reasonably successful in getting inflation back up, but markets assigning virtually no risk that there's any possible overshoot in inflation that causes the Fed to have to go back to the tight side of the policy framework. Um, you know, so if, if, you, if they get tight, you'll have higher real yields at a point in the future. So 10-year real yields capture uh, that potential for, for future tightness. So I think, you know, right now we're, we're pricing for Fed perfection. I, I think we need to see some more risk premium of an inflation overshoot in the market in here. I think we're going to see that real yield start to climb a little bit. Um, so it'll, it'll still stay low by historical standards, but we're just much too low right now because the markets, you know, has perfect faith in the Fed here. Michael, help me out with the Federal Reserve. I just didn't understand the fanfare in the last week around Chairman Powell. All he did was formalise what they've been talking about for the last 12, 18 months. We already knew everything he said because it's already leaked into the reaction function of the Federal Reserve. Now he's written it down in a speech, it's codified, formalised, fantastic. Now what are they going to do about it? They want to tolerate higher inflation. Okay, it's not just going to happen like that. How do they generate it? Right, and that's the problem. So that's why you didn't see a huge market reaction. Lots of words written about it, but uh, market reaction relatively muted. So, you know, the issue here is Fed's trying to send a lower for longer signal, but we have already been priced for lower for longer. 
Market's saying that, you know, Fed funds rate for the next five years is going to be 12 basis points. If you believe that rates can't go negative, which I very, very strongly believe that, um, there's just not a lot of upside. The market, again, is, is assuming that uh, the Fed is going to be lower for longer. So this, this sort of twist, interesting intellectually, but from a practical standpoint on, on how the Fed's going to behave, it doesn't tell us anything that wasn't already priced into the market. Michael, you're a longtime Fed watcher. You've been looking at it from the rate side and talking about the latest low rate policy and formalizing it. I want to pair that with this idea that Mike, uh, Mike, McC uh, Mike McKee, I almost said Mike McConaughey because that's his uh, Twitter handle, was just talking about the fact that 29 million Americans are on uh, receiving some sort of jobless benefits. Is there anything that the Fed can do at this point to lower the jobless rate or are they basically impotent in achieving that goal? Right. So, I mean, all they can do is, is keep rates low and, and try and buy some time. I think, you know, near term change is really more about whether we get more stimulus or not, um, you know, whether another stimulus package is coming. That's uh, the critical point to look for in the coming months. Um, you know, the Fed, I think, you know, pretty much all they're left with here is to keep committing just staying lower for longer. And then we do think they'll shift out and buy the long end of the curve a little bit more than they have been. But again, it, what they're going to buy is peanuts relative to the, what the Treasury is issuing out there. If you look at the average uh, coupon auction size, it's going to be up more than 50% from March to uh, October. So, you know, a short little stretch, you grown by more than 50%. I mean, it is just a staggering amount of supply coming from the Treasury. The Fed can't absorb all of that. Michael, great to catch up. As always, Michael Clotty there of UBS. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide. I'm Bloomberg Radio.